Welcome back to True Crime with the Bad Girl and the Playa. I am Benny Scala, a.k.a. the Playa, and I'm here as always with my partner in crime, the Boston Bad Girl, the siren of Situate, the delightful Brittany Brown. Brittany, how are you today? I'm awesome. Happy to be doing this. How are you? I'm great. I'm here with Bree. Hey, Bree. She's, she's a fan of true crime as well. Maybe even a perpetrator of sorts. <laughs> well, um, my fellow true crime enthusiasts, we have, uh, I think, quite the episode for you guys today. We're going to talk about, in my opinion, one of the most sadistic and scariest human beings that ever walked this earth. Now, if we, if our crack production team gets this right, you're going to hear a about a 20-second snippet of a song uh, at the beginning of this episode. Now, the, the, the crooner in this episode is not Slim Whitman. It is not Frankie Lane. It is not Bobby Vinton. Who's the other? Bobby Rydell. Nope, it is our subject of the podcast tonight, the uh, one and only uh, Charles Manson, believe it or not. Now, if anybody asked uh, uh, a young person on the street in the, say, the fall, of 1968, what what Helter Skelter meant to them, they would probably say, oh, that's one of the songs on the new uh, White Beatles album, right? In 2023, you ask somebody what Helter Skelter means, I got to think 95 out of 100 people are going to say, oh, that that had to do with Charles Manson. Completely Definitely. changed the definition uh, and, and made it a permanent, uh, permanent part of, of American infamy. And Manson and his cult in a 48-hour period in the summer of 1969 struck so much terror into the hearts of America that we're still – people still get – you know, they, they get goosebumps thinking about the guy 54 years later. So what I'm going to do, we're going to alternate the, like the last time. You know, I'm going to talk about a subject, and then we're gonna, I'm going to turn it over to Brittany. We're going to go back and forth. So I'm going to talk about his, uh, his early years, Manson. So just like our killer last week. Uh, the Boston Strangler, Albert Albert DeSalvo. <clears throat> Charles Manson's a product of a broken home. And I, I don't even want to say broken. I, more like shattered. Yeah. Uh, this guy had no chance. Manson was born, actually was born chi- Charles Miles Maddox in Cincinnati on November 12th, 1934, uh, to a 15-year-old prostitute named Ada Kathleen Maddox. And uh, Ada believed that an older gentleman named uh, Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., that's a mouthful, was uh, Manson's father. And um, it it was never actually proven biologically, but she did take him to court uh, and won a paternity suit in 1937. Now, Manson never met the guy. Now, uh, Manson's mom actually did marry several times, uh, one time to a man named William Eugene Manson, and that was several months before Charles was born. And even though their marriage didn't last very long, uh, Charles kept his last name. And like, I mean, DeSalvo's parents, at least the mom was out of jail, but this Manson's mom was in and out of jail. She allegedly at one point, this is so sad, tried to trade him for a pitcher of beer at a bar. Oh my God. Yeah. During, and during this time, uh, Manson was sent to live with his relatives in West Virginia. And eventually uh, Manson and his mom moved to uh, Indianapolis where Manson's mother married someone she met in an AA meeting. And I mean, besides Match.com, what a great way to meet your next ex, right? <laughs> so now Manson's first known crime was setting his school on fire at the end of nine, at the age of nine, rather. I'm, I'm thinking about, how, you know, how do you like school, Charlie? Closed. I guess he, 
You didn't like it. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to turn this over to my delightful co-host, and she's going to tell you about Charles Manson's teenage years. Yeah, wonderful. What a, what a yeah. horrible start, though, right, Brittany? What a horrible start. Uh, I'll trade you for a pitcher of beer. Yeah. Imagine. I, I That's a first. I mean, hopefully it was a craft beer, not like, you know, like. Like what? Is, what's the what's the really bad ones? Genesee Cream Ale was yeah. the one of my youth. We could get a case for three bucks. Yeah, or Schlitz. Schlitz. Oh God, <laughs> I cramp. My stomach hurts just thinking about Schlitz. Right, right. So this poor little guy, and and, and I mean little. At the age of thirteen, he was sent to the Gibalt School for Boys in Terre Haute, a reform school run by Catholic. Priests. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh, yeah. You mean they go from bad to worse, right? Right. And a year later, he commits his first robbery, stealing $100. Now, this is back then. Yeah, so that, that, was, some, that was some money. good money back then. Some good money from a grocery store in Indianapolis. And then in 1949, he was caught committing petty theft and sentenced to Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska. So what is this, his third stint now? Oh, yeah. He escaped after four days because he doesn't like any of those schools. And he went on a crime spree, eventually landing in the Indiana Boys School. At the Indiana Boys School, this is wonderful, he was beaten, raped, and tried to escape 18 times. You'd think after about 12, he'd learn his lesson. Like, I'm not getting out of here, right? Give it up, right? Okay, Just, just do your sentence, right? So 18 times he tries to escape. In 1951, he and two other students did escape. So I guess that's why he held out. Stole a car and headed to California. He was arrested in Utah and sent to the National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. He certainly made his way around the country. Oh, yeah. He, he equal opportunity offender there. Absolutely. Here, he, he tested out with a 109 IQ, but was deemed to be aggressively antisocial. Isn't that interesting? I mean, can you blame the guy? I mean, no, well, we say that. But then again, I'm sure there were many, many other youths who had a similar upbringing, but they didn't they didn't turn, turn out to be Charles Manson either. Right. Thank God. <laughs> right. One exactly. Was enough. One was enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So then in 1952. This is wonderful. He was caught raping a boy at knife point. He was transferred to the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. He committed a number of offenses there and was sentenced to maximum security reformatory in, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Chillicothe, Ohio. Oh, Chillicothe, Ohio, where he was to remain until his 21st birthday. Imagine all of this. All these trips, all these boys' schools and and prisons and everything before 21. He was paroled early and in May 1954 went back to live with his lucky aunt and uncle in West Virginia. Unreal. So I'd like to, I, I'll, I'm going to talk about his early adulthood and I'd like to say it got better, but uh, it, mm. it didn't. I mean, he he was circling the drain already. So he he actually married a hospital waitress named Rosie Jean Willis in uh, January 1995. He stole a car in Ohio. I mean, I, I guess wherever he is, I guess he feels like he needs to cr- commit a crime somewhere. I think maybe he just liked to travel. And, you know, so. he wanted, 
you know, well, some people talk about all the different hotels they uh, stayed at. And this guy, maybe he bragged about all the different jails he was in. Who knows? Right. Uh, but by now, uh, well, he steals a car in Ohio and they set out for Los Angeles. Go West, young man. And by now, his, his wife is pregnant in October uh, 1955, which I would have been what, four months old. Uh, Manson is arrested for stealing the car and uh, driving across state lines. He was given five years probation, again arrested in March 1956 in Indianapolis. And he was sent to three years prison, uh, three years, yeah, three years prison at uh, Terminal Island in Los Angeles. That doesn't sound very good. Terminal no, Island. No. You know, I mean, I, I, when I think of terminal, I think of terminal cancer. I mean, it doesn't end well. I can't imagine Terminal Island ended much better. I don't but, think so. No. And on, on April 10th, 1956, Manson's wife gave birth to Manson's son, Charles Jr., uh, while Manson was still in prison. Uh, I, I looked him up. I thought maybe he was still alive, but he passed away. I think he didn't live too long. 90, 1992, I think. He lived about 36. I didn't. I don't really know much about him, but I mean, with that name, geez, you're already doomed. Oh my and, God! Uh, so he continued, and and the thing is, he uh, committed crimes of all all sorts. I mean, he did. He pimped people. He yeah. stole cars. He ro- He robbed grocery stores. Yeah, you know, he raped a kid. Um, what else? I mean, forged checks. I mean, you name it, he did it. And um, so by the time when he was paroled in March of 1967 he would have been about 32 and a half i think at that point uh he spent about 17 years in jail so you know over over half his life and uh i'd like to say it gets better but but it doesn't so i'm gonna i'm gonna turn it over to miss Brittany to talk about the cult and uh san francisco Ooh, the cult yes so less than a month after his release he moves to Berkeley, California. He starts attending the, and am I saying this right? Hate Asbury. Hate Ashbury, yeah. Yep, Hate Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. Wonderful. Where he and some of his newly formed followers experiment with LSD, just what he needs. According to the professionals there, Manson's personality change was the most radical they had ever seen. <laughs> I mean, he didn't have a good one to start with, so. Yeah, I'm thinking like, okay, well, all right, let's see what I happens. Mean, the needle didn't need much much pushing there, I don't think. Right, right, yeah. So n- now, now we go to San Francisco, and he meets Mary Bruner, a college graduate who works at Cal Berkeley. He moves in with her and then befriends the very well-known Lynette Squeaky Frome. Oh, yeah. And convinces her to move in with them. Before long, there were 18 females living at Bruner's home. I wonder if that's what she expected when she asked him to move in. Yeah. After a while, the quote-unquote family starts traveling through California in a dilapidated old school bus. Kind of like an evil version of the Partridge family. Yeah, I'm trying to think of that song they sang. Come on, get happy. I don't I don't think uh... Uh, there was, was like, come on, get murdered, maybe, or something like that. <laughs> Unreal. But they all seemed so happy. Yeah. Well, initially, he preached a, a I mean, a gospel of, of love. It was like love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But that, yeah. as we're going to explain, that that quickly unraveled. So yeah. uh, Manson actually met uh, Beach Boy, uh, Dennis Wilson, in the summer of 1968. Uh, Wilson had actually picked up some members of the family hitchhiking. 
And uh, he drove them back to his house, which was a huge mistake because they all decided to move to make themselves at home and move in there. They actually caused Wilson to flee his own home and then live in a basement apartment somewhere. You imagine that the guy lives in a probably like what would now probably be a multi-million dollar mansion, and he's he's living in some uh, you know some studio apartment because these people have literally you know literally taken over his place. Uh, yeah. Now Wilson did introduce Manson to uh, Terry Melcher, who was the Birds producer. Now uh, what's what songs? I'm trying to think. Uh, the Birds were uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, Hey yep. Mr. Tambourine Man, uh, Turn Turn Turn, a great yep. group in the, in the in the late '60s. And uh, Melcher, though, was also the son of Doris Day. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, besides the song that you would have heard at the beginning, Manson recorded another, uh, well, he recorded a number of songs. There was one called Cease to Exist. And actually, Wilson renamed it and released it uh, by the Beach Boys as the B-side of one of their singles. And they asked Wilson, well, why didn't you give Manson credit for it? And they said, uh, he, I, I gave him about $100,000 worth of stuff. Which I'm thinking that they probably a family probably helped themselves to to the hundred thousand dollars of stuff. But um, so Manson was told by Melcher that he would quote unquote get back to him. And Manson, I think, was you know even though he was street smart, I think he was you know he was kind of he took it at face value that you know this guy said he'd get back to me. He said I was great. Well, of course you know the guy was blowing smoke up his ass. Never got back to him. Yeah. And. Uh, after that, Manson and a couple of the family members went to visit Melcher at his house. They had been there before. The only problem was Melcher no longer no longer lived there. The house was now rented, and this becomes like very, very impactful later on. It was mm-hmm. now rented by film director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate. And uh, Manson took the rejection by Melcher as a rejection by the establishment. He won- Now, the, 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 you know, we always talk about in, like in wrestling, what if? You know, what if what if uh, Magnum T.A. didn't didn't have that car wreck with this Porsche? I mean, guy would have been maybe the one of the greatest champ. I think one of the Absolutely. greatest of all time. What if what if Melcher actually signed Manson to a recording contract? How would this have how would this have turned out? I can't even imagine. Right. I mean, it sounds like in his own way, he really wanted to be a part of the establishment. I mean, he he had been rejected. And I'm trying to play amateur psychologist. And that was one of the disclaimers. You know, neither Brittany nor I or our psychologists, forensic experts, detectives, anything. We just happen to love true crime. But and everything here is our opinion. But I really think that, you know, for 30 something years, the guy was rejected. I mean, you know, his, his own mother tried to trade him for, a you know, a, a picture of uh, whatever it was, Schlitz, <laughs> not Heineken. But, um, you know, and, and this, you know, he did have a musical talent. I think he learned how to play the guitar in one of his one of his numerous stints in jail. Had plenty of time, you know, took the time to write some songs. And, um, you know, this now, I mean, shoot, I'm 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 meeting with the birds producer and I'm hanging out with one of the Beach Boys. This is my big chance. And then when that got dashed, I think that was probably one of the last draws for him. So Brittany's going to talk about it's called It Continues to Unravel. And um, when they moved to Spawn Movie Ranch. Yes, absolutely. That was in August 1968. After being evicted by Wilson, Manson and family happened upon Spawn Movie Ranch, once used as a TV and movie set for Westerns, but now a horseback riding venue. Manson and his family were allowed to live free at the ranch (laughs) in exchange for assisting 80-year-old owner 
George Spahn. I think the part, of the, uh, part of the uh, assisting was the women had to perform sexual favors. That is correct. Yeah. That is absolutely true. So, I yeah. I had that in there. <laughs> right? So, yeah, they they all took care of good old George, literally. And um, they also cleaned up and kept everything all nice and tidy. And it was during this time that Manson developed his helter-skelter philosophy. There would be a race war between the blacks and whites, which the blacks would win. However, the blacks would need someone to assist them. And that is where Manson would come in, because he believed that the Beatles song was talking to him directly. Imagine that. Even back then. Ugh. The mood of the ranch turned from unbridled sex and love to preparation for the upcoming war. Yeah, it, it, it gets worse and worse. And he really thought that, I mean, it wasn't like he heard this Beatles song and he's, wow, this, you know, this kind of portrays what we're, you know, we're trying to do. It's like he really thought that Lennon and McCartney were talking directly to him, telling right. him to, to do what he needed to do. But uh, so here's where it really, I mean, it really totally unraveled. So on, on July 1st, and I mean, this is the summer of 1969, uh, Manson shot a 22-year-old uh, drug dealer named Bernard Crow. In a, in a drug deal gone wrong. And now Manson thought, number one, that Crow was a member of the Black Panthers, and number two, that he killed him. And uh, both both assumptions were incorrect, but uh, Spawn Ranch, and this is kind of really where, like, now, you know, they're preparing for war. It was in high alert on the in anticipation of retaliation from the Black Panthers. Manson actually uh, went to the uh, Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club. Now, there's a wholesome group, right? Yeah. Um, to act as a security for the ranch. Um, and here's here's the first one. Now, everybody, when, when people think about Manson, you know, the Manson family, they always think about the two, you know, the two murders we're going to talk about in a little bit. Sure. But the first one actually happened on July 25th. Um, so Manson family members, Bobby Beausoleil. What, I mean, what a beautiful name, too, Beausoleil. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show off my eight years of French because I never really get to use it. Uh, <laughs> that means beautiful son. Uh <gasps> Not so much, though. Uh, Mary Bruner and Susan Atkins. And they visited uh, a music teacher and a, a UCLA um, PhD candidate, uh, Gary Hinman. They they really they were trying to get him to join the family. But they really what they really wanted. They 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 had heard that he recently inherited about 20 grand and they needed money. And so this is like, you know, a quick 20 grand. And uh, him said he didn't have any money. So uh, he actually got he was stabbed to death by Beausoleil. Um, now Manson was there at one point. It, this this right. happened over a span of a couple of days. Manson actually, I believe, tried to slash uh, Hinman's ear off with a sword. Yeah. Uh, but he wasn't there when the when the actual uh, murder happened. Uh, Beausoleil was found several weeks later, sleeping in Hinman's car, still wearing the same bloody clothes. So Love I guess it. you know intelligence wasn't one of his fortes because. And what do you think? What's, what do you think is going to happen? Cop seizure in, in a stolen, an obviously stolen car wearing wearing bloody clothes. And now the words "political piggy" were written on the wall as well as a, a drawing of a panther paw. Because what what Manson was trying to do, he was trying to ignite this war. He was he was trying to you know frame these killings on the Black Panthers. Yep. What and a that, guy. That, so that was that was the first one. Uh, now, Brittany's going to talk about what I really call Helter Skelter, the, the two nights in August. Oh, yeah. The two nights in August. On the night of August 8th, night one, 
1969, Manson gave Tex Watson orders to visit the former Melcher House at 10050 CLO Drive in Benedict Canyon and totally destroy everyone in the house and make it as gruesome as you can. So Watson takes Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian. And she's from New Hampshire, by the way. Oh, and, is she? Yeah. Oh, and that's, that's right. She was arrested in Concord, New Hampshire. That's correct. Yeah. All right. And she acted as the lookout. Thank God that's all she did. Um, Watson stabbed and then shot Stephen Parent, a friend of the caretaker on the property. I, I believe he was waiting in his car for the caretaker. Yes, that is and correct. And they just came up and slaughtered him yep. on their way into the house. Yes, ma'am. Watson cut a hole in a window screen and let Atkins and Krenwinkel in. They woke up the first victim, Wojtek Frykowski, and Watson uttered the words, I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's business. Can you imagine, like, the she? I, I try to put myself in the place of this guy being woken up and you see these people, you know, carrying knives with guns and there's a whole bunch of them and they say something like that. I know. My God. I, I just cannot imagine no. what could have been going through any of their minds. Right. But this, I mean, yeah, my God, I probably won't sleep tonight now. <laughs> so actress Sharon Tate, who the poor lady was eight and a half months pregnant Frykowski, hairdresser Jay Sebring, which I believe is an ex of Sharon Tate. That is correct, yes. Yeah. And the coffee heiress, Abigail Folger, were they were either repeatedly stabbed or shot. Frykowski actually managed to escape the house, but was both pistol whipped and stabbed by Watson on the front lawn, I believe. Folger also managed to run out of the house, only to be repeatedly stabbed by Krenwinkel and Watson. Sebring, the hairdresser, was shot, stabbed, and hung by Watkins. Because I guess the, sh the shooting and the stabbing wasn't quite enough. Right, yeah. So, yeah, he'll just hang him. Tate was stabbed by Watkins and Atkins. And again, after the murders... Atkins wrote pig on the front door with Tate's blood. Now, the following night, very next night, these same four, along with Manson, Leslie Van Houten and Clem Grogan, drove to the home of grocery magnate Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. The Manson family had attended a party at the house next door the previous year. So I guess they decided, well, why not? Let's go next door. Yeah. Familiar with the neighborhood. Yeah, why not? So these murders, and I know the details of these, and so do you, oh, are, yeah. are way too grisly. To it, it almost made me physically ill, just like right. reading about this. Right. Yep, absolutely. I agree. It's hard to believe a human being could be so depraved that they could do that on another human being. It just, I know it's it. incomprehensible. I, it's just unbelievable. And apparently Watson had complained um about the inadequacy of the weapons from the prior night's murders. And he had come this time with a chrome-plated bayonet. Both Lino and Rosemary were stabbed numerous times and Krenwinkle wrote the words, rise and death to pigs on the walls and helter-skelter on the refrigerator, all in Rosemary LaBianca's blood. Lovely. 
on August 26, 1969, which was just about two weeks after the initial murders, 35-year-old Hollywood stuntman Donald Jerome, also known as Shorty Shea, was murdered at the Spahn Ranch. And I believe there has been another 12 murders attributed to the quote-unquote family. You know, not for anything, when they quote, like, you know, all these murders, I really think that, you know, Sharon Tate's baby should have been counted. Absolutely. I mean, the woman was, I mean, she was, if, if she gave birth, not even premature, well, it would be prematurely, I guess, eight and a half months, but that baby had would have a 99% chance of surviving. That, that was a fully developed okay. human being. I don't know why that was not, you know, that child was not counted as well. I totally agree. And she reportedly begged for her life. She even said, let me just, you know, let me have my baby and then you can come back or something like that. It's just, it's, it's so sad. I mean, I have to be honest and I don't know how you feel, but doing the research for this podcast, now, obviously, I mean, I, I was, I was 14 in 1969. I remember it. I mean, I remember watching it on the news and I mean, just feeling pure horror, but, and over the years, I mean, I kind of knew, I mean, you know, Manson was always in the news here and there. But actually doing the research and, and seeing like how they lived and what they did to these people, it, it almost made me sick. It's just it just like I said, it's just so hard to believe that people could be that depraved and that That's twisted that, that, that any of them could do anything like that. It's terrible. So now I'm going to talk about the investigation and capture. So on August 10th, uh, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which had uh, jurisdiction over the Hinman murder, which had happened at the end of July, uh, informed the LAPD who discovered the Tate crime scene that there was similar uh, writing on the walls at the Hinman murder scene. And uh, the LAPD, thinking that Tate murders were uh, drug related, uh, the detective, they ignored this and other clues. Pure genius. And then uh, two days later, the LAPD ruled out any connection between the Tate and LaBianca murders. There, um, there was a line in the movie Home Alone when uh, one of Kevin's sisters said to him, Kevin, you were at the French call Les Incompetents. <laughs> that, that, that went through my head when I read it. Like, these are these, you know, these are trained law enforcement professionals. So uh, now four days after that, uh, about a week after the murders, Manson and about 25 others at the Spawn Ranch were arrested for suspected auto theft. What, what they had been doing was, I believe, stealing VW Beetles and converting them into dune buggies. Yep. And, and in another stroke of brilliant police work, <laughs> Since the search warrant uh, was outdated, they were released. Great. This is like, what was that uh, movie, The Keystone Cops? Yeah. Yeah, that's the, that, that's what exactly. it reminds me of. And exactly. now, at, at one point, the Hinman murder was being investigated by the L.A. sheriff. And then there was two separate LAPD detective squads on, you know, both the Tate and the LaBianca murders because they thought that all of these weren't related. So think of all the manpower that was and, you know, legwork that was wasted because they couldn't get their stuff together. And now Manson and the other family members, they eventually were rearrested for the VW Beetle uh, thefts. One of them was Susan Atkins, who uh, evidently had the gift of gab. And she, you know, chatted to her cellmates and uh, told them about the family involvement. And, you know, now based on this, um, arrest warrants were issued for Watson, Krenwinkle and Kasabian. And uh, so Watson was from uh, Texas. He got arrested there. Kasabian, um, I'm sorry, Krenwinkle was from Alabama. She was arrested in Mobile. But like you said, uh, Kasabian voluntarily surrendered in uh, Concord, 
New Hampshire. So eventually enough mur- uh, evidence was con- collected, uh, including some bloody clothes from the Tate murders, which they weren't discovered by the detectives. They were discovered by a Los Angeles ABC news crew. Imagine. And uh, they managed to connect the family with all the murders. So uh, Manson, Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Kasabian were all charged with seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Leslie Van Houten, uh, who wasn't present during the Tate murders, was charged with two counts of murder and one count of conspiracy. Now, Kasabian turned state's witness uh, and was granted immunity so she, because she agreed to uh, to testify for the, uh, the prosecution. Probably a very wise move. I believe yeah. that she was pretty much... She didn't really do much of anything. She was a lookout. Right. So she really didn't have any involvement. So right. she would probably be the one that would be the most approachable. Hey, you really didn't do anything wrong. Tell us what happened. You know, we'll, we'll cut you a deal. So she did. And uh, so Brittany will actually tell us now about the trial. Very the interesting. Trial. Yes. Oh, my goodness. The trial began on June 15th, 1970. Manson initially received approval to represent himself. Imagine but after violation of a gag order and repeated nonsensical pretrial motions, this was rescinded. Very good move. Good move. The trial was disrupted on numerous occasions, which I think many we have seen on news clips over the years. We saw some pretty crazy things, um, <laughs> and including the best one ever, Manson and family carving axes in their heads. Maybe that. they were going to start playing tic-tac-toe and like they only got up to the X. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Because typically but, you start with an X in the middle, so. Normally, yeah. But, you know, these guys, all Xs. They had them all. October 5th, Manson was denied permission to cross-examine a prosecution witness who the defense failed to cross-examine. Upon being denied, Manson jumped over the defense table and tried to attack Judge Charles Older. Manson was wrestled to the ground and led out of the courtroom. And I think that's another scene they showed over and over throughout. Oh, yeah. And supposedly the, the judge started packing a pistol after that. Oh, yeah. Wow. I don't blame him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. So the prosecution rested its case on November 16th. Three days later, the defense rested without calling a single witness. Manson had reportedly told Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten to testify that he, meaning Manson, had no involvement in the crimes, but this was denied. So on January 25th, 1971, the four were found guilty on all counts. Then on April 19th, 1971, they were all sentenced to death, which eventually was changed to life after the death penalty had been abolished in California. Tex Watson was tried separately and found guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy. He was also sentenced to death, which again was changed to life in prison. Now, Benny, you are going to tell us all where they all are now. Where are they, where are they now? So let's start with the star, uh, Manson. Mm-hmm. So Manson died at a, at a Bakersfield, California hospital. I think he had colon cancer at the age of 83, November 19, So he, after being in prison for 48 years. So if you take tack on the 17 before he got to California, out of an 83-year life, he was probably in jail for 65 out of 83 years. Imagine that. And starting trouble, the other 18. Absolutely. Unreal. Now, uh, Tex Watson, 
still he's still alive. He'll be yep. 78 on December the 2nd. He's been in prison for the past 54 years, and he's at the Richard J. Donovan uh, Correctional Facility in San Diego. Susan Atkins died at the Central Women's Facility in Chowchilla, I think it is, California, like on September 24, 2009, at the age of 61, after spending nearly 40 years in prison. Uh, Patricia Krenwinkel. So there's one, there's two of them who are still, actually three of them are still in prison. She's uh, still alive. Uh, she's incarcerated at the California Institute for Women in Chino, and she'll be 76 on December 3rd. And she's been in prison for the fa- past 54 years. So you're talking about people who they were like 21, 22. I think uh, Susan Atkins, I believe, was like 20. Yeah. Uh, these are young, young kids. Uh, now, Van Houten, uh, she's 74. She was actually released on July 11, 2023, after serving nearly 50 years in uh, prison. Uh, the Tate, she was the one actually. The Tate LaBianca murders were committed around two weeks before her 20th birthday. Oh. Uh, Bobby Beausoleil actually turned 76 today, and he's been in prison for the past 54 years. Uh, and he was only convicted for the murder of Gary Hinman. He's serving a life sentence at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. And then the infamous infamous Squeaky Fromm, who was not there during the murders, but she was arrested on September 5th, 1975 in Sacramento after a failed assassination attempt on uh, then-President Gerald Ford. So she, re- she received a life sentence. And um, on December 23rd, 1987, she escaped from uh, federal prison camp Alderson in West Virginia. She got captured two days later, Merry Christmas, on Christmas <laughs> Day, and uh, was, was uh, incarcerated at the uh, Federal Medical Center in Carswell in Fort Worth, Texas. And she was paroled on August 14th, uh, 2009, after uh, 35 years in prison. But one thing I want to go back on, Tex Watkins, Watson rather, was a all, uh, honor student in high school, was a the captain of his uh, high school football team. I think he set several records in track and field. Uh, I think Susan Atkins was studying to be a nun. Uh, Leslie Van Houten was a was a beauty queen. Beausoleil uh, was a musician. These were all. I mean, they were at at one point they were normal. Yeah. Um, somehow, like like in in uh, Watson's case, I believe Watson was in college in Texas, went to go visit a a friend, a fraternity brother on break who lived in California. Oof. When he was in California. They, you know, California was drugs in the late 60s. Got there, never never went back. And then, you know, once once these people met Watson, I guess that's what I'm trying to... Watson had this way of emptying these people's minds out of everything they knew and then just put his, you know, in, put his, his doctrine in there. Yeah. And, I mean, gotta, I mean, give the, literally give the devil his due that, I mean, look at how many people he influenced by, by doing this and this is not really a, a, a he's not a he i think we said he tested out at a 109 iq 109 which, yeah which that's probably about average right yeah you know nothing i mean mensa wasn't going to be knocking on his door he, nope, he wasn't going to be working for pushing any buttons at nasa or anything like that or working at the mayo <laughs> clinic but I, I mean the guy had an unbelievable amount of charisma Absolutely. And that's but and most people use charisma for, you know, for good. But this was one man that that, you know, he had an agenda and he carried it right through to the end. 
And I'm amazed at the loyalty that these followers had to him, even after like he was in jail. I mean, they, they I believe the when when uh, they wanted the defense to testify, the, the you know the the girls that he had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think they would have done it. I do too. Just just to make sure that he that, that they had that much. You know, I believe he told them that he was Jesus Christ and Satan all rolled into one. He did. And uh, now I was going to ask you this before. I'm sorry, I forgot. But you have to, you had you told me a story about Manson last time from your own personal experience. I, I ha- you have to tell it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what happened was I was in ninth grade. And I was in a news media class and I wanted to get my very first A because I was like a B student. So and my sister was an A student. So I said, I'm I'm, I'm going to get an A and I'm not going to get it by doing a byline on Andrew Jackson or George Washington or John Quincy Adams. I'm going to do the byline on Charles Manson because I can guarantee you nobody else is going to do that. And I was right. And I also got an A plus. But what you were supposed to do is see if there was any way you could get something besides just writing the byline, get something that you could bring and show to the class. So I said, oh, great. Let me, you know, watch watch TV, find out where Charles Manson is, and then I called 411 again, the ever lovely 411 for Vacaville Prison in California, which is where he was at the time. And I called and asked for him. And I thought back being a ninth grader from a little tiny town, never leaving this little tiny town. So very naive. I'm thinking they're going to put him on. So I'm like going to you know, waiting to be put on hold. And then he's going to come on and say, yeah, what's up? And I was going to request. <laughs> I was Manson just in the kitchen. I, I was on, I was peeling potatoes. I'm sorry. I kept you waiting. Yeah. I was making some license plates. Can you hold yeah, that, on? Exactly. You know, so um, I was, I, I was all ready to ask him, Hey, you know, here's my address. I, I will pay you. I will send you a money order. I'll go to the supermarket tomorrow. I I need to get some Mansonites and Mansonettes because what I heard on the news was that he makes marionettes out of string and he names them Mansonites and Mansonettes. And I thought, what a great thing to have a handmade Charles Manson marionette along with my byline. Well, unfortunately, I never got that. They just hung up on me. Um, I was grounded for two weeks and I spent every single day of those two weeks grounded. I did not have a father that was like, oh, okay, you've done two days. You're good. Nope. Two weeks. You had the word, you had the word cleaver, like no, no, uh, no pardon. Yeah, no pardon. Absolutely not. Um, uh, but I didn't give up. I called back cause I thought, well, you know, maybe that person that answered the phone just thought he was busy or something. So, you know, whatever, I'll call back. So I called back. And then I wrote him twice. And by by the time I wrote them, my parents were just going through a divorce and just split up. And I decided to use my mother's address instead of my father's. And she absolutely, this part I didn't tell you, she absolutely flipped out 
that I used her address. And she got on the phone, called my father and said, come over here and get her. She's not living with me anymore. We're going to get killed. We're all going to get hung by the beams wow. um, from the beams, excuse me, because uh, she's, you know, writing to people again and calling people. And this is just out of control. So I got kicked out of the house. I didn't leave. The next day I was coming up the hill in my cheerleading outfit with my pom-poms and there was the situate police in the driveway. And I thought, oh my God, maybe he did come and slaughter her. But no, they were to take me to my father's because wow. I was officially kicked out. So now what year was this, Brittany? This would have been 1977. Okay, so about eight years after it happened. Yep. Now, did he really make these uh, marionettes? Yeah. Did he, I mean, was he allowed to sell them? No. Okay. But I thought if I offered him money, of course he's going to send them to me. But I didn't, I didn't know anybody in jail and I didn't know you couldn't call them. And you got grounded initially because you used uh, long distance. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my father looked it up and said, Vacaville, California, what the hell is this? So he called the number. And, of course, the A student didn't do it, so they knew who did it. Now, um, you said you got an A-plus, though, right? I, my one and only. But the, my sister, who was a year and a half older than me, was not into any of this, and she was a straight A student. She ended up going to Wheaton College, Phi Beta Kappa, you know, uh, first in her class from Wheaton College. Ugh. They knew it wasn't her that made right. the call. But now did the A-plus, did you get any kind of redemption because you got the A-plus? No. No, that didn't matter? No, it didn't matter at all. I mean, I made two calls to Vacaville, which after being grounded for two weeks, you would have thought I wouldn't do that again, right? Nope, I did it. And then I wrote to him twice, which got me kicked out of the house literally by the police now but that's not that that's a, a, a fortunate incident but i and maybe i'm reading into this but i have to think that that was one, one of the things in your mom's thought process was oh my god this guy's going to come here and kill me exactly and that's the kind of fear that this guy instilled in everybody in this country and you, i mean Absolutely. you were in massachusetts i mean this guy's what three thousand miles away yeah in, in jail you know, behind, not solitary, but I mean, well, maybe he was, but, Probably. and your mom is worried this guy's going to break out of jail and travel 3,000 miles just because, you you know, you wrote him a letter. But yeah. I mean, that that just, that says it all. That says what kind of, you know, how, how, how much terror that he, he spread in, in this country. It sure does. It sure does. And, and, you know, to top it off, the same day that uh, she called my father and wanted to kick me out, which was the day before I was literally kicked out. I, I will confess I did do something else because she was acting so erratic. We had the, do you remember the Pyrex all white plates? Oh, yeah. That everybody uh-huh. had, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you had it as a requirement. Big, yeah. Big fan of ketchup here. I love extra ketchup. We had hamburgers and french fries that night. Now, this is, again, the night before I literally got kicked out. So when my mother came to collect the plate, I wrote pig and ketchup. 
and I handed her the plate and I made my eyes this big when I turned around. Well, there was my sister and my sister's very first boyfriend was sitting there and they just lost it because they knew I was just messing with her, you know. But she lost and broke the plate, screamed, hollered, that's it, I've had it. You know, so, yep, off to dad's, shipped to dad's the next day. And now that's after that, I was there any more Manson activity after that? Definitely not. That, I, I'm that assuming, that, happen. did you follow the guy over the years, though? I mean, did you keep track of him? Oh, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of like a joke because I, I did that to my mother. So, uh, you know, my mother only died about eight years ago. And, you know, I, I would bring it up every now and then. I would bring it up. And she still, to the day she died when she was 81 years old, she still gave me the the scariest eyes and says, I, can't, I still can't believe you put my address as the return address on that. I knew he was going to come out and get me. And I said, Mom, don't you know that he's never going to come out? And I have to say, I'm shocked that anybody that got convicted on those crimes got out. I was I was going to ask you that, like, because one of them. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you justify at least? I mean, the only way to me that you should be paroled is if somehow you can bring one of these people back to life because you you snuffed out human beings no matter what. Yeah, you're sorry. You're a model prisoner, but nothing brings those people back to their families. I know. I know. And you know what gets me is I believe all of the ladies were model prisoners. So why is it that, you know, all right, so one died in jail. All right. And then the one I think the one that just got out is the one that actually cut the baby out of Sharon Tate's stomach. It might have been. Yeah, Van Houten. Yeah. So that kind of floors me that she got out. And then Patricia Krenwinkel. Um, she's still in there. Yes. Imagine being her. I'd be like, hey, she get out. Right. Yeah. Well, what's wrong with me? Yeah. You know, I just I, I'm so shocked that I've been following this since I was that age and that one of them actually got out this year. I can't believe it. I never thought I'd see it. Well, Watson, I think, actually got himself a bachelor's degree and he became an ordained minister. He became a born again Christian. But I'm sorry, like uh, I mean, it, good for him, but yeah. I I couldn't be a, I couldn't be a part of his congregation. No, I, I just couldn't. No. And he'll no. he'll never see the light of day. No. Oh, definitely not. No. Because he was like he was like the guy right under Manson. He was Manson. He was Manson's right hand man. Yeah. Correct. He was there for every murder. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, God only knows. He, I think he he was present for all nine of them. And I don't know if he was present at the other 12, but I mean, you're talking about a, you know, now you're talking about like a, a Bundy like serial killer almost. Yeah. yeah. So and, yeah. And imagine how many we don't know about. Correct. You yeah. know, I'm sure there's, um, yeah, it's like any of these, uh, what's his name? Um, I think it was Gary Ridgeway, the green rate, green river killer. Yeah. He confessed to 48 Could be 148. Who knows? Absolutely. Absolutely. And with the bungling at the beginning that the, you know, LAPD did, um, you know, how many more were there that they didn't put together? Right. You know, crazy. crazy. And, and I mean, I don't know what Manson's deal was, but I mean, it seemed like there was enough. 
I mean, he had enough body of work as a criminal that he should he probably should have been in jail in 1969. Absolutely. And none of this would have happened. Absolutely. I know. And can you imagine that those people, several of them in the family, quote unquote, were from great families, oh, yeah. um, you know, middle, upper class families. And imagine what LSD does to a person to make them do these things. Yeah. Like I said, I think uh, Atkins was wanted to be a nun. Uh, one of them was a uh, beauty queen in high school. Yeah. And just, you know, the minute Manson got them, he completely it, almost like he had a vacuum cleaner and he, he sucked in out whatever was uh, in their brain. And yeah. he put in whatever he wanted them to believe. Yeah. I mean, is that what LSD does? Because I've never known anybody that's yeah. done LSD. Is I, that what it does? does I, it... I don't know. I mean, I, I have to plead ignorance and, and, and I'm very glad I can plead ignorance. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it, it makes you wonder. He's like this Svengali little guy, you know, getting everybody to do exactly what he tells them to do. One of the things that supposedly he did is whenever he got his family members high, he took way less than they did Ooh. because he wanted to stay in control. And this way he could continue to manipulate them. So, I mean, for a guy with a 109 IQ, he, he was pretty crafty. Yeah, pretty crafty. But, but I guess right. growing up on the streets, you you know, and he wasn't a big guy. I mean, he <laughs> wasn't physically. I mean, he, he was very menacing when you looked him in the eye because, I mean, it's like looking at the eyes of the devil. But, I, I mean. It wasn't like, I mean, if, if, you know, you were in a boxing ring with the guy, it's like, man, I could squash this guy. But oh my God, it, it, yes. it's what he represented that really was scary. Yeah, it was very scary. But imagine, you know, he must have been beat up so much. I mean, as a grown man, he was only, what, 5'5", five, five, I think? He was 5'5 five, five on a good day, probably like a buck 30. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And there's some big boys in prison. Oh, yeah, I can only imagine. And I mean, even as a kid, he was if he was only five, five as a, as a grown adult. Imagine how small he was as a kid when all yeah. that stuff was happening to him. Yeah. I mean, like we said, you know, people, there's many, many people in life that overcome unbelievable obstacles, but not everybody has a strong constitution. And this guy just I mean, the deck was stacked against him so much and he just didn't have it in him to. uh you know, to overcome. And the shame is he probably could have, I mean, he could have been a decent musician um, if he kept at it. I mean, he probably could have did, did something else. I mean, he seemed like he, he wrote songs. He, he had some modicum of talent. Yeah. That, I mean, he, this is the way he chose to go. Yeah. And he I'm never veered from it till the day he died. No, no. Never, never said he was sorry. Never, no. you know, never said I, you know, I made a huge mistake. I mean, nothing. He was right up to the very end. Yep. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And all the kids that he had over the years, too. I, I, I heard there was about four or five of them that he had. Well, I know he had one with Susan Brunner. I think his name is Valentine Manson. And I believe he is still alive. The first one is passed away. The the one he had in 1956, I believe he's he's gone. But the uh, Valentine is alive. And I, I, there has to be more because, I mean, he was having sex with everybody at that ranch. How could yeah. you not? Everybody. And, and you know, um, I know when when he passed away just a few years back, his grandson, who is the son of Charles, the one that passed away. OK, I believe Charles Jr. killed himself. 
if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. All right. I, I believe he did because he could not stand I living mean, with the shame. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I could see that. I could definitely see that. Yeah. Yet the grandson, he's on Facebook. He lets you know who his grandfather was. He went and did all the interviews. He, he Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. He raised money for the um, the services. And I actually purchased one of the um, the leaflets from the service. So I have that wow. in my murder memorabilia room. Wow. Yeah. And, and so that paid for the service, selling all those. I think he had 250 of them made. Okay. And he sold them all. And, of course, that was one of my prized possessions upstairs, right on the wall. One of the only things I ever had to sign for. Okay. Proud well, of that. So, I mean, even out of evil, sometimes good good arises. Yeah, well, I mean, this this grandson of his, he's a, he's a good-looking guy. He's younger than me. Um, he's probably, I don't know, maybe around 40. He's he married, got children, but he has no problem telling who he is, yet his father yeah. couldn't live with it. But he, he leads a normal life, you know. Wow. I'll tell you, if I was related to him, I wouldn't let anybody know. I'm I changed my name. You know, oh, that's, God. That's, that's what I would do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Crazy. Just to have that stigma you know, oh. hanging over your head in, in this world, it would not be a good thing. Yeah, especially Junior, huh? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Jeez. At least well, Valentine's a Valentine. Did you uh, did you enjoy this, Miss Brittany? I loved it. I thought this was the best one. So good. How about I agree. You? I agree. So should we come back and do another one? Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to figure out what we're going to do. Hopefully you folks out there uh, enjoyed this as much as we did. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. I mean, I have to say I absolutely learned. Uh, I mean, I knew of the crimes, but I did learn a lot more, probably more than I maybe wanted to know. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, we got, I got quite the education uh, from this. And uh, I believe Brittany did the same. Although yeah. she had a head start on me because, you know, she was pen pals with the guy. Um, almost, but, um, all right, folks. Well, you, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Tune in to true crime with the bad girl and the player. Have a good night.